Welcome to the Ridley College podcast. Here you'll find expert content from past Ridley events, including our public lectures, a series of scholarly lectures in biblical studies and Christian thought. Tune in to hear from leading voices on the New Testament, children's and youth ministry, evangelicalism, Anglicanism, missiology, and much more. Uh, my name is Brian Roster. I'm the principal of Ridley College. For some reason, everyone's sitting over here. It's an interesting uh, development. Anyway, fortunately, we're not on a ship, otherwise we'd capsize, I think. Um, yes, tonight is another one of our lectures, uh, our guest lectures in a series we hold each year here at college, the Leon Morris Lecture in New Testament Studies, where we hope, and this is, we'll see how you go, Chris, uh, cutting-edge scholarship in accessible form. So I hope that's the brief you were given. Yes, okay. <laughs> Yes, so it's uh, great to have you with us, friends. We've also got about triple this number online, so I don't know where I'm supposed to be looking. Um, those online, uh, very happy to have you with us as well. Uh, there'll be a lecture, and then there'll be a time for questions. We'll take questions from the floor and also from those uh, in the Zoom meeting. So just put your, your questions in the Zoom chat. And hopefully we'll give everyone a chance to have their question answered. So our lecturer tonight is uh, Christopher Watkin, who is a, an associate uh, lect uh, professor at, uh, at Monash University in French studies. Um, yeah, so uh, Chris is uh, um, a very impressive scholar in academic terms. So his, uh, his main work is in French philosophy and French studies. And what he's doing for us tonight is sort of just something he does on the side. But as I was discussing with him earlier, as a believer, he wants to understand the world in biblical terms and both his understanding of the Bible and theology and uh, philosophy has aided him greatly in that. He's a member of Mentone Baptist Church, so he's a humble believer uh, like the rest of us. Uh, currently, he's serving an ARC research grant on something called the social contract. Four years of research leave, 80% of his time spent uh, doing research, so it's a great provision uh, for someone like Chris to have that time to work. Uh, his book, which I'll show you a bit later, is basically um, uh, behind this lecture. This lecture, I think it'd be fair to say, um, uh, spins off a part of the book. Um, how many of you have owned or have read the book, uh, Biblical? Oh my goodness, look, we, why are we having the lecture? I mean, <laughs> shall I just go? <laughs> <laughs> Seems like everyone's already read it. Yeah, that's great. I've heard of staff teams doing it um, as a professional development, so it's, it's a great gift to the church. And uh, we're very much looking forward, Chris, to your lecture with us tonight. How about if I pray before we start? Uh, thank you, Heavenly Father, for uh, this opportunity to uh, uh, think together. Uh, we pray for Chris that you'd help him to say things with the, which are true and clear and helpful. Thank you for the wisdom of the cross revealed to us in your word in 1 Corinthians 1. Uh, thank you for our world. Help us, Lord, to respond to our world in ways that are full of grace and truth like the Lord Jesus. Please may tonight's time together uh, move us in that direction. Uh, please encourage us and build us up for Jesus' sake. Amen. I'll hand it over to Chris. Thank you very much indeed, Brian. Really kind uh, words of introduction. Thank you for your welcome before that as well. I, I feel really, really welcomed, really at home here. So thank you. And um, thank you, everybody in the room. Thank you, everybody on Zoom. Uh, I know 
our time is precious, isn't it? Uh, and we don't give it up uh, easily. So I, I'm humbled, I'm honored that you've carved out time to be here this evening. I'm gonna try and make it worth your while as best I can. Uh, and hopefully together we can, uh, we can draw some wisdom out of God's word. It, it's also a huge privilege for me to be giving a, a lecture named after uh, Leon Morris. Uh, I've known uh, Leon Morris's work, I think I was trying to work out earlier today, for over two decades. Um, the first encounter that I had with his writing was when I was doing a study on the idea of love in the New Testament, when I was a, back as an um, impecunious graduate student. Uh, I could allow myself only one book purchase, uh, and it was this, it was this copy uh, of Testaments of Love. I think it was Abe Books that I got it through. Um, and it was my first ever sort of systematic extended exposure to, to what agape means in the New Testament, which has been really foundational for me uh, in subsequent years. So I've got a great deal to thank Leo Morris for, uh, and it is a great honor uh, to be giving a lecture named after him today. I want to start with a question, and I invite you to answer it in your minds as, as I laid out before you, uh, and it's this. What do you think are the greatest challenges facing the Christian church today? I would be surprised if the following ideas didn't soon come to mind. There's, there's God in the gospel, isn't it? God in the good deposit, surely that is important. Uh, there is evangelizing the nations, the Great Commission. How can that not be important, given what Jesus said about it? I wonder if one of the ideas that came to your mind was thinking carefully about the relation between the gospel and culture. If you see that as one of the real priority areas for the church these days. Let me share with you, if I may, uh, a quotation from, here we go, Timothy Keller. Uh, in the foreword he wrote to a book by um, Jake Meador on the common good. Uh, and Keller says the following, he says, I have been an ordained minister for nearly 45 years. When I entered the ministry, most of the divisions in the church seemed to be doctrinal. There were controversies, controversies about the charismatic gifts and Pentecostalism, about the end times and the second coming of Christ, about predestination and free will about the meaning of baptism and the Lord's Supper. I entered a Presbyterian denomination in which there was a high degree of consensus on all those issues. And yet today, my church, like so many others, is sharply divided, despite the fact that its ministers can agree on a very long and detailed doctrinal statement to the Westminster Standards. So why all the conflict? It is not so much over doctrine as over what our relationship to the culture should be. And as I look round, I see this same division roiling Christian denominations and organizations everywhere. I think there is some truth to what he's saying there, isn't there? The, the question of how Christians ought to relate to culture does have the potential to sow discord, perhaps even schism uh, among different Christian groups, even within Christian congregations. Um, I have sadly witnessed in my own walk at least one dear Christian friend who lost her faith over the question between, uh, of the relationship between Christianity and culture. She just couldn't work it out, um, studying philosophy. 
Um, it is a question that has the potential to twist and distort the message that we preach. And it's also a question that has the potential, if we answer it uh, in uh, damaging ways, to hamstring our evangelism as well. So this is a very serious question, and perhaps Keller's right in saying that it's, it's the, you know, one of the main questions facing the church today. Over the years, I have struggled with this question as someone who went through the spin cycle of uh, an arts bachelor's degree and then through the mangle of a PhD in philosophy, uh, which didn't quite manage to squeeze out of me all the fresh dew of, of Christian faith and hope. Um, this is a, a problem that I have had to struggle with regularly uh, over the years. And as I've done that, uh, I found that one passage really, uh, more than any other, has been um, a lodestar for me, a, a, a way of trying to understand cultural engagement in a, in a richness that I really haven't found matched anywhere else. As you can imagine, as a, a fresh-faced undergraduate, um, trying to make sense of the philosophy that I was studying alongside the, the faith in, in Christ and high view of the Bible that I held, it, it seemed that there were two ways of doing cultural engagement, at least the books that I read at that time, and, and none of them really, neither of them really seemed rich and full and adequate, really. Um, there, there are two tendencies, um, and they're slightly caricatural, but I, I think there's a sense in which cultural engagement does drift in, in one of these two ways. The first is that the Christian cultural engagement is seen predominantly as an exercise in identifying and denouncing what is wrong in the culture. When we're doing it correctly, we're pointing out everything that's unbiblical in the culture around us. And the second tendency sees it as its job to get alongside the culture and show how the culture's values and aspirations are fulfilled in the, in the gospel, to, to contextualize, to show that the gospel is relevant to the cultures around us. And, and it seemed to me as I was struggling with these philosophical ideas that, that there was an overemphasis in both of those ways of doing things, that both of them were, were missing something. So in this lecture, I want to tell you uh, a love story, uh, how I fell in love with 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse uh, 18 to 31. I want to show how I think it shapes a lot of the best cultural critique that's been done in the history of the church. And then towards the end of the lecture, I want to focus on one contemporary example and just walk through the 1 Corinthians 1 framework in terms of, of something that I, I noticed in culture a little while ago. So 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, uh, verses 18 to 31. Um, the, the opening of the love story, I'm afraid, sounds like the first line of a, a Mills and Boone novel. Is Mills and Boone a thing here? Trashy romantic fiction. Okay, so here we go. It all began in a cramped hotel room in Luton. Um, I was the, waiting for um, a plane early next morning. I don't even remember where I was going, but anyway, I was at Luton Airport in this little hotel. And I was uh, crunching through a bunch of lectures on my iPod. We had iPods back then, this is how old this is. Um, and it was a, a lecture series by Ed Clowney and Tim Keller again, uh, called Preaching Christ in a Postmodern World. It's still available floating around on the internet. 
And uh, up until that point, I had been looking for love uh, in all the wrong places. I had been searching for this cultural paradigm that could help me to make sense of the philosophy that I was studying from a, a rich, rigorous biblical point of view. And, and I'd, I'd found these two tendencies that, that weren't adequate. And then um, the world stood still because there was this brilliant exposition of 1 Corinthians 1. It was, I think it was Keller who was speaking at the time. And, and he unfolded the way in which the passage can be used to engage with culture in a way that I'd never heard before, in a way that I found incredibly compelling. Also, I thought, because, <coughs> pardon me, in doing my due diligence for this lecture this evening, I thought I'd better listen again to this lecture course just to make sure that I had it right. <laughs> to my horror, it's not there. What I thought I'd heard in this lecture course <laughs> is so embarrassing. I've been quoting this lecture course for years. I put it as a footnote in biblical critical theory. Listen to this lecture course. It's all about one Corinthians. It's not there. I, I, can, sort of, I can sort of see where I got it from, that, that there are uh, ways that Keller talks about the scriptures in general and culture in general that I think I, I sort of must have merged together with 1 Corinthians 1 in my mind. So I'm going to give you the 1 Corinthians 1 that I remember rather than the 1 Corinthians 1 from that lecture course. And this is what I remember. Um, the, the, the passage can be broken down. It's not the only way that it can be used, but a useful way is that it can be broken down into four moments. Um, and it begins, here we are, for Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks seek wisdom. So what is Paul doing? He is identifying some dominant values in the cultures around him. Uh, Jews demand miraculous signs, a uh, semeia uh, in the Greek. And, and it seems clear later on in the passage uh, that what they're looking for in these signs is power, demonstration of God's power. Uh, they want to see something spectacular. They want it to happen in front of them. We're after power. Uh, and Greeks uh, seek wisdom, Sophia. And, and again, as we read on through the passage, it seems as though what it is about wisdom that the Greeks are seeking is, is the sort of rhetorical poise and flourish uh, and um, sort of crafting of arguments of the great orator. Um, they uh, admire the oratorical art and the oratorical skill. So Paul looks around and he identifies these two things in the culture. And if you permit me, uh, I would like to represent this in terms of a diagram. Now, the diagram is take it or leave it. If it's helpful, fantastic. If it's not, let's, let's not obsess about the diagram. But I find it useful as a way of understanding the passage. And so I've represented the, the Jews demanding signs and the Greek seeking wisdom down here uh, as an ascending line, uh, which is showing that these are aspirational values for these communities. They're, they're things that they desire, that they aspire to. So Jews demand miraculous signs and Greek seek wisdom. I'll continue. Here we go. But we preach Christ crucified. Uh, he comes to them uh, with, as he says, the word, the logos of the cross. Um, he doesn't directly address, you know, let me talk to you about power. Let me talk to you about wisdom. I'm coming you with the, to you with the word of the cross. Now, I don't need to belabor to an audience such as this, I'm sure. The point that the idea of Christ crucified is oxymoronic, uh, both to the, the Jewish and the Greek mind at the time. Uh, many things are said 
uh, about Messiah, but it is not at the forefront of the Greek consciousness that he will be killed. He is a rescuer who frees us uh, from Roman rule, not uh, rule, not someone who gets um, extinguished uh, on a Roman cross. And similarly for the Greeks, uh, this is not a, a terribly uh, ennobling uh, sort of platform upon which to launch an oratorical career. Um, you know, I introduced to you the man who was crucified. It's, it's, it's not going to get the Greeks paying attention. It is, you know, it's a, like a boiling ice cube to them, isn't it? There, there are messiahs and there are crucified people, but they are not the same people. And yet this is the message that Paul comes to them. And <clears throat> lo and behold, um, they react as we would presume they would react. Uh, the cross is a stumbling block to Jews. Uh, scandal on it can literally be a stumbling block, of course, or it can be folly um, uh, and folly to Gentiles. Uh, so it is stupid, the cross, uh, and it is foolish, the cross. Uh, and these two groups, if you like, and this is, um, this is where we can take our leave the diagram, they, they bounce off the cross, if you look. they don't go through it. Uh, they come to the cross, nothing to see here. It's a stumbling block, it's folly. There's no wisdom, there's no power in the cross. In fact, it's really the antithesis of those things. There's nothing less powerful, is there, than a man struggling to draw a breath who can't even support his own body weight because of the way that he's been placed on the cross, uh, bleeding and dying. It's hardly what one would think of as a picture of power. Uh, and there seems very little that's wise about the cross. Think of the great orator uh, in their toga, holding forth, captivating the audience. Uh, well, this man certainly isn't doing that. He's a criminal, uh, and criminals uh, deserve to be humiliated. And the cross was humiliating, wasn't it? You know, the medieval loincloths save our blushes, but they're probably not accurate representations of just how humiliating uh, the cross was for people. This is, this is not a picture of wisdom, uh, and therefore the Jews and the Greeks turn away. Uh, we, there's nothing that responds to our values here. But Paul's not finished, wonderfully, and he goes on. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. What is he doing here? Well, here's one way of thinking about it. Paul has some imaginary scale. Let's take wisdom, imaginary scale of wisdom. So huge wisdom, little wisdom. And he takes, <clears throat> he takes the Greek wisdom, uh, and he says, let's just think about this wisdom that you're so keen about. Um, have, you, have you found it yet? Now, you keep bouncing around from one philosophical school to the other, always wanting to, to hear the latest idea. That, that would suggest that you, you haven't quite found what you're looking for yet. Um, where, how are you doing with this wisdom search? Let's put you somewhere down towards the bottom here. And uh, let's look at this foolishness that you see uh, in the cross. But let's have a look at the way, and, and this is the, the, the way that Paul unpacks it in, in this passage, at the way in which this foolishness allows you to know ultimate reality, know the God of the universe. Now, let's look at how this foolishness uh, allows you to, to be right with him, uh, to be forgiven, washed, sanctified, uh, welcomed home into his family. It's, it's looking less and less foolish as we, as we go on, isn't it? Um, in fact, the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. Let's put it up here at the top of the scale. 
And so what is Paul doing then in this passage? If we take these four things. So you pass through the cross. You do, you, you're looking for signs. You're looking for wisdom. You pass through the cross. You find God's power and God's wisdom. What's Paul doing? I think, you have to see whether you agree with me, I think he's at least doing two things, and I think it's the combination of these things that's dynamite, uh, and that was really eye-opening to me as a paradigm of cultural critique. Because on the one hand, he's drawing a hard antithesis, isn't he, between the values that the Greeks and the Jews are seeking and the message that he's bringing. He's not saying... You're halfway there. Power and wisdom, fantastic. Push a little further and you'll find Christ. No. He says, you want power? I've got foolishness for you. You want wisdom? Uh, sorry, power, I've got weakness for you. You want wisdom? I've got foolishness for you. It's a hard antithesis, an uncompromising antithesis. This is not what you think you are looking for. It is the opposite of what you think you're looking for. Now, if that was all that Paul was doing in the passage, then those books on cultural critique that I'd read as an undergraduate that were saying, what we must do is denounce the culture. We must put clear blue water between the gospel and culture. We must call out the culture's sins. They would be cheering in the stands, wouldn't they? Paul's our guy. Go, Paul. We told you so all along. Listen to Paul. But that isn't all he says in the passage, is it? Because he also says, foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, the weakness of God is um, stronger than human strength. And, and at that point, it's as if the other crowd, they, we must contextualize, we must be relevant, we must show how the culture's storylines find what Tim Keller calls their happy ending in Christ. That crowd are now cheering in the stands and saying, Paul's our man, listen to him, we told you so all along. Become relevant, get alongside. The wonderful thing about this passage, the thing that has blessed me so much over the years, is that Paul is able to be white hot about the antithesis between the word of the cross and the values of wisdom and power that the cultures around him are searching for. He never compromises them. And he's able to unload both barrels on the idea that the gospel is the radical fulfillment of these values as well. Not in the way that the Jews and Greeks think of them at the moment. There's a repentance that's required. It's not, I've just got a bigger version of what you're already looking for. You've, you've got to, in a sense, overturn your expectation of what wisdom must look like because I know. You've got to be willing to let go of that. And so Paul is, in a sense, issuing a challenge. Now, he's obviously writing to Corinthian believers, but via them, he's issuing a challenge to these communities uh, of, of Greeks and Jews. It, it goes something like this. Are you really serious about searching for this wisdom that you proclaim about this power that you say that you really want? So if you are really serious, uh, I challenge you to look for it in the place where you would least think you would find it challenge you to look for wisdom and foolishness of a man being crucified, struggling to draw breath, and I challenge you to look for power in the foolishness of a man unable even to, it seems, to, to bring himself down from the cross. Now, I know that sounds ridiculous. I know that sounds stupid. But let me promise you that if you do search for wisdom and power in this least likely of all places, 
you will find a wisdom and a power, the strength, richness, and beauty of which you cannot even imagine. It will revolutionize what you think wisdom can be. Never mind fulfill what you're already expecting. And it will blow your mind as to what power can do. But you'll only find it if you go via the cross and set aside your expectations of what wisdom and power must look like. And this paradigm in 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 31, I think can be seen in some of the, the most incisive and influential events of cultural critique in, in the history of the church. I, I'm not aware that it's been commented on this way, but it, it just seems to me that there's, there's a, a very strong parallel. I just want to talk about one of them. Yeah. Uh, and it's perhaps the most influential moment of Christian cultural critique in, in the 2000 year post-biblical history of the church. It's Augustine's uh, City of God. Um, now, The City of God is a very long book, and it's a very complicated book. So I am mightily relieved this evening uh, that I can make almost all the points I need to make from the first page. <laughs> and, and most of them, in fact, from the first word, which is going to make it a lot easier for us, um, because you don't have to trust me synthesizing huge amounts of material. Um, we can just focus uh, on, on the first word and then a little bit from the first page. Um, I, I think it's worth pointing out that our cultural moment, not uniquely, but significantly, I think, bears a lot of similarities to Augustine's cultural moment. And so we're not just sort of plucking a, a random book out of the history of the church, but there, there, there is a significant resonance between the sort of world he was facing uh, and the world uh, that we're facing. Uh, a world driven by different ideological factions who, who just seem to be shouting at each other rather than engaging with each other. Uh, a world perhaps in which a, a veneer of freedom, uh, the Pax Romana, is actually hiding quite an authoritarian conformism uh, under its surface. A world in which the, the state and the market join powers to dominate, certainly dominate those outside the center of power, uh, and to consolidate power in the center. A, a world in which a once mighty superpower is tottering, looking weaker, uh, led by seemingly erratic rulers. And a world that prides itself on being beyond the naivety of faith, uh, and yet holds to a bizarre array of fabulous superstitions uh, that leave, certainly leave Augustine in the city of head, God scratching his head at the bizarre things that these Romans believe. And so so there, are, there is, I think, a profit for us, particularly in going back to the city of God today. And I want to just do a, a tiny little bit of that in this lecture. There's, there's much more we could uh, glean from this book. So... City of God, chapter one, uh, sorry, book one, paragraph one, word one. Gloriosissimam siwitatem dei. Uh, the city of God is most glorious. Got to begin a book somewhere, haven't you? What, what is so, you know? <laughs> nobody is falling off their chair at the moment. I, uh, let me try and unpack why I think this is an explosive beginning to the city of God. So the city of God is most what? Most glorious. Well, what is glory? Well, it's Rome's way of talking about itself. It's Rome's value on which it preens itself. You know, Jews demand miraculous signs, Greeks seek wisdom. Rome is all about glory. They're all over that in Rome. 
But the Roman idea of glory is not a very biblical one, to say the least. Um, to gain gloria in Roman society, one could rise to the higher echelons of government uh, and wield great power. Uh, one could finance great public works and build monuments. That, that was a, a, a way to gain glory. Or you could wage successful military campaigns, kill lots of people, dominate a particular area, bring the loot back to Rome and, and parade it through the streets in triumphal procession. That is, that is a wonderful moment of glory for you. Now, it is safe to say, therefore, that there is no to put it mildly, one-to-one -one correspondence between the fruit of the Spirit and what Rome thinks glory is. This is no Christian value. So what on earth is Augustine doing? Because he knows his readership. You know, he's no outsider to Roman culture himself. He knows the resonance of this term. What is he doing? The city of God is the most glorious. Well, later on, he goes on to put some flesh on the bones of glory. Uh, he says, for example, that Lazarus at the rich man's door, sort of beset by fleas, is more glorious than the rich man. He says that Abel, who was slain, is glorious. He says that the martyrs who were slain are glorious. So it's clear that he's not just taking this Roman idea of glory as the Romans understand it and saying, hey, over here, we're glorious too. Look at us. He's not doing that. And so this idea of glory is functioning, I think, for Augustine, in the first word of the city of God, in a similar way to the, what Paul is doing with the values of wisdom and power. In other words, there's a hard antithesis. You think glory is dominating people in war and making them subservient to you. I think glory is about as far from that as you could get. It's, it's a, a, a poor beggar man. Uh, at a rich man's gate. You will not recognize glory in my idea of glory. But it's really interesting to see what Augustine then does with these stones. Because he says that the welcome that Lazarus receives into Abraham's bosom puts to shame any retinue, any fine robes, any beautiful house, mansion that any rich man has ever had. That there is a deeper and richer glory to Lazarus, without playing around in semantics, a glory that everyone would consider glorious. But it is come to through um, the poverty uh, that Lazarus endures. And he does the same with Abel, uh, and he does the same with the martyrs as well. So there's an antithesis. You want pomp and circumstance and great public works and military triumph, and I offer you a beggar. You know, he's not just saying this is more of what you want, only a little bit better, is he? But he's also saying that through this biblical idea of glory, through the glory of the city of God, if you're willing to go there, you will find a glory, the depth and fullness and richness of which even your Caesar can't imagine. Makes Caesar look like a pauper by comparison. You've got to go through the Christ who emptied himself and became nothing and died on a cross in order to see that. You've got to overturn your idea of what glory can possibly be in order to find the fullness of glory, in order to find true glory. And it's a similar rhythm, isn't it? It's a similar way of trying to engage with the cultural value to what we find 
in 1 Corinthians 1. Hard antithesis, no compromise. It's Lazarus, deal with it. But a rich fulfillment, everything that you are mistakenly and twistedly grasping for in this idea of glory is a pale copy of what is the full true glory of the city of God. Still on page one of the city of God, um, Augustine does a brilliant, brilliant thing. He, he does something that I think is equivalent to the, the, the idea that, that Paul has in, in 1 Corinthians 1 of God has made foolish the wisdom of the world. That there's an inbuilt how to put it, almost self-sabotage to, to the way that the world seeks wisdom. It, it, it is structurally impossible to find the fullness of wisdom and power that way. And, and Augustine does a similar thing with, with glory. Um, he, he looks out of Roman culture and he says, what you're really after is mastery. You have to use that 1980s vocabulary. You want to be masters of the universe. You want to dominate everything, don't you? It's what Rome is about. You love it when you dominate. The more you can dominate, the better. And he's got this brilliant um, line where he says that, that the city, the earthly city, Rome, has been mastered by its lust for mastery. You're so hell-bent on domination that it has consumed you. You have become slaves to this desire to dominate. What an irony, paradox, that is. You become mastered by your lust for mastery. Like any addiction, isn't it? It's the dynamics of addiction. You think it's serving you. You think it's helping you. It's enslaving you. God has made foolish the wisdom of the world. You want mastery? You will find yourself mastered. The true glory is to be found in the city of God. And of course, Augustine is not the uh, only thinker in the history of the church to use a, a similar movement to this. Uh, recently, uh, the Dutch missiologist, uh, J.H. Bavink, um, has this idea that, that uh, has been repopularized in recent years by uh, Daniel Strange, who's, who's a, a Bavink scholar and has written on Bavink. Um, this idea of what uh, Bavink calls subversive fulfillment. Uh, and I think it's fundamentally this 1 Corinthians 1 dynamic as well. So subversive, think of antithesis, fulfillment, think of fulfillment. Um, and what, what Bavink is saying is that the, the gospel engages with culture by, and I'm quoting Daniel Strange here, subverting it in that it confronts, unpicks, and overthrows the world's stories, and also fulfills in that it connects and is shown to be worthy of our hopes and desires. Um, it encourages us to exchange the stories that the culture is telling us and the values that, that the culture is telling us to follow. Uh, and to see those, as another quote, the originals from which our false stories are smudged and ripped fakes. It's the same rhythm, isn't it? Um, this is the opposite of what you think you're looking for. This subverts what you think you're looking for. And yet, this is the fulfillment of everything that you have wrongly been searching for in all the wrong places. So, let's think about the present day uh, and just try and see what this way of, of thinking about cultural engagement might look like uh, using a particular concrete example uh, from uh, the culture around us. I'm going to use an example of a poster 
that I saw on my walk home from work a couple of years ago. Um, I couldn't find the actual poster online, um, but this is the, the closest that I got. So the, the strap line is the same. Uh, we are Gen P led by none, uh, but it was a different picture. But it's, it's the same idea, and, and we can work with this, this image I found on the web. Uh, so it's, it's an advert for the uh, general uh, pants company, a garment manufacturer. Uh, they're obviously playing on the name here, Gen P, Gen X, Gen Y, the generation of P. Um, and I want to, to begin trying to think through this with you by asking the question, well, what, what does it show that people want? You know, Greeks, uh, Jews demand miraculous signs, Greeks look for wisdom, Romans are all over glory. Okay, what, what about this? What about one little slice of our culture? Well, when we think about our culture, more broadly, I'm sure there are some values that very readily come to mind for all of us. You know, what do people today want? Uh, freedom is a big one, isn't it? Both on the left and the right. Uh, equality is a big one. Uh, justice. Everybody wants justice. Nobody wants to live in an unjust society. Um, and I've, I've engaged all of those ideas elsewhere, so I don't just want to rehash that material for you tonight. I want to try and bring something a little bit different. Um, and if we look at this poster, I think it... it highlights for us, at least I'm going to argue that it does, see, see if you agree with me, two values, and it's, it's really not terribly easy to see how they go together. Expressed in, in its simplest form, I think the two values are, I want to fit in and I want to stand out, uh, or to give them more, more sort of abstract terms, we want community and we want individuality. Um, so the, the desire for community, I think, is, is right here at the beginning. We, uh, so this is not just me saying it, there is a group to whom I belong, with whom I identify, there's a we, uh, and we've even uh, got a name, look, Gen P. I belong to a particular generation. There's somewhere in society that I belong, somewhere where I'm at home, a community that I can call we, I, in other words, fit in. There's somewhere that's home to me. Um, but not only that, uh, this is the community of those who are led by none. We don't tell, let anyone tell us who we are. We don't let anyone tell us what we're about as a community. We are individuals, not led by our families or by tradition or whatever else it might be in the culture around us. Now, I do have to say that I've got nothing against the General Pants Company. <laughs> this, this point could be made in, from one of a, a hundred different adverts. It's just that this is the one I saw on my way home. So, so I'm, there's nothing, I'm casting no aspersions on this particular corporation as opposed to others. I think this, this is a, a ubiquitous narrative in our culture. It's just that I happen to come across this. So, Jews demand miraculous signs. Greek seek wisdom, uh, the General Pants Company think that we want community and individuality. And I think we, we see those values elsewhere in society as well. Um, but we, says Paul, preach Christ crucified, uh, which is a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Greeks. So, you want community? Well, let me bring you to the cross where we see a man who's been abandoned by his friends and by his disciples. And ultimately also, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me by his father? Uh, come to the cross and see someone who is isolated, 
and forsaken. Doesn't seem very community rich as a paradigm, does it? And you want individuality. Uh, well, let me bring you, if I may, to the cross uh, about which Paul speaks in the following words. Um, I have been crucified with Christ. Uh, I no longer live. This is how terribly affirming of self-identity and individuality does it. In fact, in many ways, it sounds like precisely the opposite of what you're looking for. And therefore, it's only true that many people in today's society, Christianity, wanting community, wanting individuality, and think, well, nothing to see here. Better keep away from this crowd. There's no community and there's no individuality in the word of the cross. But, of course, Paul doesn't stop there. Because for those who believe, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. And so, please come to the cross, you who seek community. Because I will show you, and philosophers have noticed this recently, uh, Alain Badiou, a, a communist French philosopher, has written a book on this, that the very idea of an inclusive community in our tradition has rich biblical roots. The idea of a community not based upon one's ethnicity or one's family, uh, but a community indeed of male and female, uh, Jew and Greek, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, who are all one, regardless of social standing, regardless of how much money they've got, regardless of ethnicity, all one in Christ. And Badiou argues that every claim to universal inclusive community piggybacks to some extent on that idea that, that Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, brought into our tradition. But we haven't finished. Let me show you a community of every trunk, tongue, tribe, and nation gathered around the throne of the Lamb in perfect unity in heaven. A community which includes the people who sewed those garments, people from their communities, from their ethnicities, who don't appear on the poster because they don't have enough money to buy these particular garments, so they're not really relevant. They're not Gen P, they? But they're in this community too, equally praising God with one voice in Revelation 7. Now, show me anywhere in human history, in any community, in any culture, past or present, a community of the richness and fullness and transcendent splendor of that community in Revelation 7. You say you want community. You say you want inclusive community. Here's where it is. And every other community will find you being, to use that language of Augustine from, um, from first page of a city of God, not mastered by your mastery, but consumed by your consumption. Because there's an irony to adverts like this, isn't there? This is not the only one. You want community, you want individuality. Well, buy this particular brand of mass-produced garment 
And then you, we laugh, don't we? Because when you say it out loud, it's ridiculous. But is this not the message of adverts like this? Because when you buy this brand, then you'll be your own person. Then you'll know that you're an individual. Then you know that you don't listen to the messages they give you, that you're led by none. Consumed by your own consumption. There's an inbuilt sabotage to seeking community in this way. You become the bite a bit. The joke is on you. God has made foolish the wisdom of the world. And you who seek individuality, let me take you once more to the cross that you so quickly dismissed. Let me show you a God who knows every hair on your head. Do you? Do you know yourself that well? God who can individuate every single hair on your head. A God, therefore, who knows you as an individual better than you know yourself. So you don't know every hair on your head, do you? Have not any idea. And more than that, let me take you to a God who will forsake the 99 sheep in the sheepfold in a ridiculously non-economic way, risking his own life for the one. I mean, how much is the one worth? It's not worth risking oneself for, is it? Get another one next week. Wait till they lamb. You know, it, it doesn't make sense. And yet God cares so much for the one that the shepherd in Jesus' story will risk his own life for the individual. But of course, the story undersells Jesus, didn't it? Doesn't it? Because he didn't just risk his life. He gave his life. He was the shepherd who died to rescue the sheep, not just who went to find the sheep. That is how much God seeks after you as an individual. So again, Show me anywhere in the history of human civilization any view of the individual that is so transcendently ennobling and enriching as this one. Are you serious about searching for individuality? Really serious? Because if you are, there's only one place you're going to find it. And it's the place where you would least think it would ever be hiding. It's on the cross. You've got to pass through the cross. If you're really serious about finding this individuality that you crave. Don't become consumed by your consumption. Find true individuality in the cross. Thank you for listening to the Ridley College podcast brought to you by Ridley College. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing and liking our podcast. Also, be sure to check out our Ridley Chapel Sermons podcast through the link in our podcast description. This podcast is made possible through the generous donations of our alumni and supporters. We welcome your partnership with us in our mission of equipping men and women for God's mission in our rapidly changing and increasingly complex world. If you'd like to contribute to our work, you can donate via the link in the description below.